Your Holiness, Venerable Samdhang Rinpoche, Venerable Bhikkhus and Bhikkhunis, friends. First of all, I am extremely grateful to Your Holiness for organizing this and to come for uh, taking the initiative and doing uh, the needful. I think this is very important. Now, all these books that I wrote, I wrote because there was a load on my mind. I wanted to express something. I wanted to make it known to people. For example, that there are cultural foundations of mathematics. Right? So, so um, this sort of thing, the load has gone from my mind. It has become just a physical load now, difficult to carry. So I would like to uh, communicate. And I have a number of points. And maybe I cannot cover all those points in the time available. So, uh, but I have nevertheless put them because I'm sure there are, I mean, with all this learned audience, maybe it does not get across immediately. You can consult it later on. So you don't need to watch the screen. You can listen to what I am saying. I may go through fast, but it is there for your later reference. So I am going to cover two or three things. Mathematics and zeroism. Zeroism is my term for Shunyavad. Science and Paticca Samuppad. And I will just touch upon Shil, which I think are central elements of Buddhism. Of course, you know better. But I want to talk about the interface with science and with mathematics. So the issue is, how does Buddhism connect to mathematics and science as it is currently taught and practiced? And uh, it is uh, especially, I mean, it is especially for physics and mathematics. Now we know there must be a connection. Why? Because Buddhism is not based on faith. It is based on two pramans. There are only two accepted valid means of knowledge. One is Pratyaksh and the other is Anuman. Pratyaksh and Anuman. And those are the two means of knowledge accepted also by science in principle. Therefore, there should be a connection in principle. It is important to demonstrate that connection. Why? Because if we see today, uh, science is regarded as valid knowledge. And something which does not agree with science is rejected as invalid. And therefore, we want to demonstrate this connection. And as uh, he said, there are cultural factors in mathematics and in science. And I will try to explain that to the best of my ability it is a lot, maybe it needs a lot of time, but I hope at least the central idea will get across. So there are cultural influences in present-day mathematics and science. And if we want to make it compatible with Buddhism, it may be necessary to eliminate those cultural influences. To make mathematics truly universal, to make science objective in some sense. So in Buddhist thought, I will focus on only two key concepts. One is Shunyavad in connection with mathematics. The other is Paticca Samuppad in connection with science.
in connection with physics. I use the word zeroism. Why do I use zeroism in place of Shunyavad? Because the interest is in the practical application of the philosophy. And for that practical application, the reference to the uh, uh, authoritative text is not, I think, so important. There is a lot of controversy. There can be a lot of discussion on what exactly Nagarjun said, what he did not say. And that is not, that discussion is not uh, perhaps relevant to the practical consequences. So zeroism is how I interpret Shunyavad. If uh, somebody disagrees, there is no problem. The practical value of zeroism is still there. So I am talking about the practical value in mathematics. So I said there are cultural factors. So let me start with this. 2 plus 2 equal to 4. Where are the cultural factors? It's a simple thing. I'm not going into anything complicated. Right? <laughs> 35 years ago, when I used to be a formal mathematician and I used to teach in Pune University, I used to begin my postgraduate classes in mathematics with 2 plus 2 equal to 4. The idea being that the students should understand the philosophy of mathematics, not just that 2 plus 2 is equal to 4. All right. 2 plus 2 equal to 4. Why is it valid knowledge? Is it valid knowledge? And the typical response is, let us say two chairs and two chairs make four chairs. Right? Or two apples and two apples make four apples. Or two glasses and two glasses make four glasses. But this is Pratyaksh Praman. I can see those glasses. I can see those chairs. It is empirical. It is Pratyaksh Praman. And the problem is, Pratyaksh Praman is accepted in Buddhism. It is accepted in all schools of Indian thought, all systems of Indian philosophy. It is also accepted in science. But it is not accepted in formal mathematics, which is the mathematics which is today taught in schools and universities, which is what I used to teach in my uh, when I was a formal mathematician. <laughs> all right? So this is rejected. Pratyaksh Praman is rejected in formal mathematics. Pratyaksh Praman is rejected. And what does formal mathematics want? It wants to use anuman or deduction as the sole means of proof. You refer to the appearance and reality. There is sort of differences. Yes. There is always gap. Yes. So the Pratyaksh is mainly based on appearances. Okay. Okay. That now Nagarjuna sort of the philosophical sort of view is the true truth. Kasa. Kuzutama Sudama Lutha. Samriti Satya. Yeah, yeah. I will come I will come to that. I will come to that in a minute. I'll come to that in a minute. The point here is that uh, the demand in present day mathematics is no connection to Pratyaksha. Absolutely, whether appearance or reality, it should not connect to Pratyaksha. It should be purely deductive based on some axioms. Piano's axioms or axioms of set theory or something else. And that makes the proof very complicated. To prove 1 plus 1 equal to 2, 2 plus 2 equal to 4 is a bit complicated. 1 plus 1 equal to 2, Whitehead and Russell, 
who wrote in their Principia Mathematica, they take 378 pages. This is the 378th page from that book, Principia. <laughs> so, yeah. It is all. Yes, absolutely. This is what I'm trying to say. That why should one plus one equal to two need so much of? Why is it so difficult? Because there is no reference to the pratyaksha. No reference is allowed, and the symbols that are used in formal mathematics lack any intrinsic meaning. So one plus one could be zero as in exclusive or used in computer circuits, or it could be 1, one plus 1 equal to 1, as in inclusive or again used in computer circuits. So to specify, we must first specify what is this 2, that it is an integer. But what is an integer? There are infinitely many integers. So we must first specify the whole infinity of integers. So formal mathematics brings in the metaphysics of infinity even at the level of 2 plus 2 equal to 4. It is not a simple matter at all of pointing to glasses or chairs or anything else. だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だと。だ
So there are lots of problems. So better to base on empirical rather than set theory. That's what I'm driving at. Now I want to explain why this belief is wrong. That you must proceed on anuman or deduction only. Alright, this is aspect of classical Buddhist philosophy. Rather than a complicated metaphysics of infinity, Pratyaksh is reliable. That 378 pages of Russell, not reliable. But that is what the West believes, that this metaphysics of infinity is the path to certainty. More solid than Pratyaksh Praman. So why does it reject uh, Pratyaksh Praman? There this question comes that Pratyaksh Praman is fallible. Right. Uh, one may mistake a snake for a rope or a rope for a snake which is the common classic example. So it is fallible. But Western philosophy believes deductive proof is infallible and certain. Now that is belief is wrong. And uh, therefore, the theorems of formal mathematics are not valid knowledge. I will give three arguments. The first argument is that they are relative truths because the truth depends on the hypothesis. The second argument is that logic is not unique. For example, Buddhist Chattushkoti. The third argument is that there may be errors in deductive proof, as has happened historically for centuries. So, uh, deductively proved theorem. I have some axioms. Some of those axioms I deduce a theorem, and uh, this is not valid knowledge. Why not? So, the first argument from relative truth. This is a lokayat argument. A man takes wolf's paws and he goes and makes impressions on the ground. And then he says, wise men will look at the marks and will infer that there was a wolf. But they will be wrong. Because that is not the only way wolf's paws can make a mark on the ground. I have come and done it. That is the truth. So this is one example. Because they assume the hypothesis that paw marks can only be created by a wolf. I can give you a much more concrete example which actually took place in science for centuries in uh, connection with a very important navigational problem which was the central problem of Western science for centuries. So here is a uh, triangle. The yellow part is the triangle. This is a right angle triangle because uh, these things, uh, these two lines, the latitude and longitude lines are meeting at right angles here. Pythagorean theorem is a deductively proved theorem, let us assume it is not actually, it was proved only by Russell let us assume it is a deductively proved theorem, it does not apply here it does not apply here because the surface of the earth is curved and how do we know that? we can only know that from Pratyaksh so we don't understand, I mean we don't know whether the hypotheses are valid so formalists also accept this argument that the theorems are true only relative to the hypothesis but the hypothesis of formal mathematics, whether Piano's axioms or set theory, they are metaphysics. And since they are metaphysics, the truth of those hypotheses can never be ascertained. Therefore, they are 
I mean, it is never going to be valid knowledge. And as Russell himself said, in mathematics, he meant formal mathematics. He assumed that all mathematics must be that. We never know whether what we are saying is true. So second argument. A deductively proved theorem is not valid knowledge because logic is not certain. It's not universal. Now, uh, if you change the logic, if the different logic from the same hypothesis, I can prove different theorems. So Aquinas, Kant, Russell, etc. They were unaware, they were ignorant of the multiplicity. So this Chatushkoti differs from two-valued logic which is assumed in proofs of formal mathematics because it's a logic of four alternatives and you can have something which is true and also the world is infinite, is, is both finite and infinite. That is the example given. And that cannot hold in two-valued logic. Neither does it hold in Jain Syadwat. So there is a multiplicity of logics in Indian tradition. We are familiar with it. And we have to apply that and not take somebody else's word who says that two-valued logic is universal. That's not right. Therefore, there is no certitude in the theorems of formal mathematics because of the uncertainty about logic. And uh, which logic? Aquinas said God decides. Logic binds God and therefore logic is superior even to God. But which logic binds God? He had no answer to that. He did not even ask the question. So how do we select the logic? If we select it on pratyaksh, on empirical grounds, then mathematical proofs are more fallible, deductive proofs are more fallible than empirical proofs. If we select it on uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I think I made a mistake. If we select it on cultural grounds, then mathematical theorems are cultural truths. If we select it on empirical grounds, then they are fallible. Right? The choice of logic is fallible. Yeah, 
So there is also an argument from Bugs. I will skip it. But the key point is that uh, the Pythagorean theorem was supposed to have been proved in the elements. But there is no valid deductive proof of the Pythagorean theorem before the 20th century. It is all myth. I have explained this so many times. And it is there in this book, Euclid and Jesus. It is there in other writings. So um, uh, this is the book. It's available. I will skip this. I'll just quote Bertrand Russell because authority. He said it is a scandal. Hundred years ago, he said it's a scandal that Euclid is still being taught to boys in Britain. It is a much bigger scandal that it is still being taught to <laughs> children in India <laughs> after hundred years. So the proof of the Pythagorean theorem in the elements uses is an empirical proof. The fourth proposition is proved empirically and the proof of that depends on it. It is a complicated thing. It is discussed in cultural foundations and so on in so many places. I won't go into that. What do you mean by empirical? Pratyaksh, Pratyaksh, Pratyaksh Praman that you take one triangle, put it on top of another triangle. So that is an empirical proof, not a deductive proof. There is no axiom. The first proposition talks about two arcs intersecting. You see them intersecting, but there is no axiom which says that they should intersect. That is what I mean. You see them intersecting, but it is not derived from axioms by deduction. So let me summarize. In other words, it is direct experience. That is all right. It is not deductive. It is not deductive. That's the point. What is the validity of Pratyaksh is a different matter. I accept it is fallible. But deduction does not lead to certainty. That's the point. And there is no deduction in the elements. That is the point. It was thought to be a deductive proof for 800 years by all the scholars in the West. And that thinking was wrong. That is the point. That you can mistake an invalid deductive proof for a valid deductive proof. And this situation becomes more complicated with the four-color theorem and with computer-generated proofs. That no human being can decide whether it is a valid deductive proof. All right, so what is my position? I am saying that we should not rely on Pratyaksh Praman alone. No. Nor should we rely on Anuman alone. But we should use both Pratyaksh and Anuman as in the Indian mathematical tradition, as in Buddhism, as in science. That is the road to valid knowledge. So this is the point that is being made. This requires a complete change of the mathematical tradition. Because what is done today is formal mathematics. We have to reject it and we have to go back to a more traditional system. I will go to one more point very quickly to explain the relevance of zeroism. Mathematics or Ganit is about useful calculation. It is not about proof alone. It is not about reasoning alone. It is about calculation. So calculation of whatever sort we do necessarily involves inexactitude approximation. For example, let us take the Pythagorean theorem. 
this is the theorem. Uh, it says that if we have a right angled triangle, the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the square on the sum, uh, the sum of the squares on the sides. So if C is the uh, hypotenuse, then C square is equal to A square plus B square. In Indian tradition, it is stated in terms of the diagonal of a rectangle. If we take the C as the diagonal of a rectangle, A and B are sides, then C square is equal to A square plus B square. That is how it is also stated in Egyptian tradition. That is how it is stated in Iraqi or Babylonian tradition in very ancient tablets. This is how the uh, result is stated for a diagonal of a rectangle. But this form is not useful for calculation. So, in uh, to calculate C from a knowledge of A and B, you need square roots. And Manav Shulba Sutra, for example, 10.10 explicitly states the so-called Pythagorean theorem using square roots. And those square roots are also found in Egyptian tradition, in Iraqi tradition. They are not explicitly stated uh, because the things have not survived. In Indian tradition, this has survived. The point about square roots, what difference does it make? It is inexact. You cannot exactly calculate square root of 2. Because if I calculate square root of 2, it leads to a non-terminating, non-recurrent decimal expansion or a non-terminating, non-recurrent infinite series. So this is the series I have put down. If you see in your calculator, if you do square root of 2, it will give you 1.414 dot dot dot. Whatever it gives you is not exact because if you square it again, you will not get back exactly 2. You will get 1.99999, but not 2. So it is inexact. It is always inexact. It is necessarily inexact if you stop after a finite number of terms and you cannot sum the infinity. Therefore, the Shulba Sutra declares square root of 2 as servishesh with a remainder or anitya, non-eternal. And that is, uh, I mean, for all practical purposes, you have to live with that. There is nothing you can do. Without whether you have formal mathematics or not, for calculation, that's the only thing you can use. Whatever theorems you may prove. And I will skip that. Uh, there is a point about empirical and so on. That in formal mathematics, it is very complicated. In uh, With zeroism, I can point. Here is the diagonal. This is exact. Square root of 2 is an approximation to that. In formal mathematics, I don't have anything to point to. I have to say there is a real number system, a horribly infinite set. Each element of which is again a horribly infinite set and which has no real existence, it is pure metaphysics, and then say that all calculations you can do in reality are erroneous, which is not right. 
that this Western metaphysics of infinity is the only thing you can have, only correct way to do mathematics. That is what has to be rejected. So, uh, this is not unique. I will go into that in later on. If I may clarify another point uh, that is just on the board here, Professor Raju is alluding to the discussion between those who believe in a universe that had a beginning, that was created out of nothing, and those who say that the universe has no beginning. And therefore, uh, there is a metaphysics of infinity related to a beginning, as in the Big Bang, as opposed to a metaphysics which says there is no beginning. And uh, that is a big discussion between creationist religions, like Christianity, for example, and Buddhism, which doesn't uh, announce or you know, a, a creation, which doesn't uh, talk about a creation. Thanks. Thanks. So, uh, I will, again, I'll skip this business of non-Archimedean arithmetic versus the real number system. It is a little technical. The point is that on Buddhist thought, not only square root of two, but everything is anitya. The whole world is anitya. Anitya. So the reference to anything which persists for two instants is necessarily inexact. If I were to say, as I was saying two minutes ago, but two minutes ago I was a different person. You were different people, slightly different. We ignore that difference. That We zero that difference. But the difference is there in reality. So when I use the word I, it is inexact. So for whatever I talk about, I must necessarily take this inexactness into account. I have no way of being exact in the real world. And that is the reality. It is the idealistic position that there is exactitude which is incorrect. So zeroism is, excels in dealing with this sort of thing, with inexactness, with approximation and so on. And that is where it is most useful. It should be used. It should be recognized up front and it is a realistic philosophy. And I will just mention, to come back to the thing with 2 plus 2 equal to 4 as I started, it is not even there. Even there you cannot find exactitude. Because if we speak of two glasses or two dogs, those two dogs are not identical. But we neglect the difference as irrelevant to the context. And to see the relevance, consider, for example, two big gold coins plus two small gold coins. How many gold coins is it? Is it, uh, what would be a fair exchange? Would it be five small coins or would it be three big coins? All right. So that will give you a different kind of an arithmetic. But actually, what would you do? Actually, what would you do? You would not do either of this. You will wait. And you will wait and then you will say that you will shift to a different model, to a model of fractions. That integers do not apply to this situation. So I will not speak of 2 and 2. I will speak of whatever it weighs. Add it. I will use fractions. This is the practical course of action. 
So we shift our model to describe the situation. So let me summarize in the manner of Nagarjun. Normal mathematics, as opposed to formal mathematics, is neither certain nor non-certain. So because it is neither exact nor inexact, since you accept Pratyaksh Praman with zeroism, it is not certain. So it is not as uncertain as a proposition that a rabbit has horns. Likewise, calculations such as square root of 2 can never be done exactly. But it is not as inexact as saying square root of 2 is 21 or something like that. So it is neither certain nor uncertain, neither exact nor inexact. And that would be the uh, position of zeroism on this. Now let me quickly cover one more idea of uh, how mathematics connects to culture when people talk of aesthetics in mathematics. Is there any aesthetics? Is there any beauty in mathematics? Now Plato believed that mathematics like music arouses the soul. And uh, this is discussed in great length in this book and in various other things that mathematics, the word mathematics derives from mathesis which means learning. And learning, according to Plato, as he states in Meno, through Socrates, or as Socrates states, is recollection of knowledge acquired in past lives. That is what Socrates says. He has a dialogue with the slave boy, and he claims that the slave boy's knowledge of mathematics proves that existence of the soul. And Proclu who is a Neoplatonist, thousand years later, says the same thing, that mathematics arouses the soul from its slumber. And therefore, Plato prescribes in his Republic... May I have water, please? Slum, sleep. Sleep. Thank you. So we know that this notion of the soul was cursed by the church, discussed in great detail in this book, 11 Pictures of Time, which banned mathematics in the 6th century. And when mathematics was accepted back during the Crusades, it was delinked from that Egyptian, Platonic, Neoplatonic, Indian notion of soul and related solely to reasoning. Why that happened, what was the politics of that is a long story. But Aquinas talks of divine reason and that notion of divine reason differs from Proclus' notion of divine reason. So, well, this is the book in case you could not see it. And this is the other book on 11 pictures of time which deals with how these notions of time were transformed in Western tradition. That is very important for the purpose of science. So, formal mathematics it has no aesthetics. It is soulless in both a literal and a metaphorical sense. And how do we demonstrate that? If you see students today, children, they all like music. They always have this uh, thing connected with the phone or whatever and they are listening to music. But they, so many of them detest formal mathematics. They hate formal mathematics. So there is no pleasure in it for them. They are repelled by it. So what is the solution? Solution remedy is to switch back to normal mathematics from formal mathematics. That's the idea. So let me say, summarize again, that there are four noble truths in mathematics. There is much dukkh today among mathematics students. 
राइट and the reason for this dukkh is ignorant acceptance of western formal mathematics without understanding its real philosophical basis so the dukkh can cease through right knowledge which rejects formal mathematics and its metaphysics of infinity as erroneous and the way is provided by zeroism which accepts as in normal uh, as in normal math uh, uh, the empirical and so on and inexactitude so uh, it accepts lack of certitude and inexactness both the things so this is uh, what i would like to suggest about mathematics that this is necessary part of reality and now this synchronizes it this uh, completely uh, aligns it with the buddhist philosophy of mathematics and uh, some other points that it makes mathematics very easy and this has been demonstrated in actual teaching experiments with eight groups in five universities in three countries i taught calculus without limits as it developed in india with aryabhat and the first experiment was in sarnath so like the buddha my journey also began from sarnath so this was a course that was taught many years ago i think around 2009 and uh, the students some of them were very happy they understood what had happened and the idea was that in 5 days one would be able to teach calculus to students who had at least a 8th standard background unfortunately some of those students did not have that 8th standard background there was a little difficulty but we got over it then this was taught in tehran again to a general group it was taught in ambedkar university delhi and this group of people were very happy the students because they were social scientists they were economists and they had dropped mathematics because they were unhappy with mathematics and this is al bukhari international university malaysia so uh, there are other courses calculus without limits is not the only course where i cannot go into everything zeroism suits ideally suits probability as it again developed in india and hence there is a course on statistics for social science which has been devised there is a course on string geometry as in the shulbha sutra for class 8 uh, students because it clarifies the concepts of calculus and trigonometry much better okay so the references that book is there cultural foundations of mathematics and there is a full list uh, if you see this um, the long list i think i will not uh, move out from this uh, presentation but it is available on the net all right if you search for it or i will show it to you just now at any anybody wants the details of course i will leave this url here so the other part is that it makes mathematics better students are able to do harder problems a simple example is that um, well i will skip this that it doesn't have uh, they can do harder problems a simple concrete example is elliptic integrals they are not taught as part of any calculus course because calculus only deals as taught in universities only deals with elementary integrals this is a non elementary integral but it is needed for doing science the first experiment in science involves a simple pendulum and that simple pendulum the time period is given by an elliptic integral which students don't know so you can measure it you can see it but you cannot calculate it because the mathematics is defective as taught is defective 
And so this has actually been done. It was in fact done by my son uh, and the, it is available as the Pendulum Project. This was done when he was in class 12. So if you Google Pendulum Project, you will get this. So just have to Google it and you will get the entire theory as it was done. The observation and the calculation and why that calculation is needed. Now, why better math? Better math leads to a better science. That's the bottom line. Not just saying that we should do it because it is Buddhist. It's saying that we should do it because it leads to a better science. That's the point. So, um, again, there are cultural issues in science. Aquinas, he proposed the dogma that God rules the world with eternal laws of nature. Laws of nature. So this is there in Summa Theologica. Divine reason. And divine reason rules with eternal laws of nature. Why are they eternal? Because it is, uh, he's not subjected to, he's not subject to time. Divine reason. This is the claim made by Aquinas. And, uh, okay, I think I will skip that, but the real problem here is that there is a dogmatic belief that only God is capable of creation and that creation happens only once. That is not the belief in other uh, cases. It's not the belief in Islam. It's not the belief in Sufism. It's not the belief in Neoplatonists. It's not the belief among Gnostics. And certainly it is not the belief among Buddhism. You allow that all uh, there is continuous creation that you are in a way able to create the future. This is what you observe. So there were debates between Buddhism and Jainism on this issue and this is well known. So the point is that laws of nature is declared as belief in laws of nature is declared as essential to the ability to do science. And this particularly has been applied against Islam. Islam does not believe in laws of nature because Al-Ghazali rejected that belief. I have a long article on Islam and science and I have given several lectures on that. So you could take a look at that. I am not going into it. I am only saying that you are obliged to believe. There is a normative view that in science, to do science, you must believe in laws of nature. And Buddhism could be similarly attacked tomorrow because Paticca Samuppad is not laws of nature. It is something that human beings are doing, something that living organisms are involved in doing. Now what are the laws of nature? They are written down as differential equations in current physics. Newton's laws, the mechanics or gravitation, Maxwell's equations, or Hilbert-Einstein equations, or Schrodinger, even Schrodinger equation. It connects. What does it do? Forget about what these equations are. Let's not write. What does it do? That the present state of the cosmos decides all past and future states. This is what these equations tell us. These equations are formulations of laws of nature in terms of mathematics. And what they say is that all past and future states are decided by the present state of the cosmos. But this is contrary to our everyday observation. I decide whether I am going to drink water at the next instant. I decide that. Small thing. But I can do those small things. And that observation should be compatible. Science should be compatible with that observation. Because science has to be compatible with observation. And not the opinions of scientific authority. But existing science can be, com can be made compatible. It requires uh, 
And we should not have to talk about free will because that's a theological discussion. And we should be able to discuss compatibility of science and observation without bringing in theology. Because it's just between science and facts. So is it possible to reformulate science to make it compatible with mundane observation? Yes, it is possible. That also makes it compatible with Paticca Samuppad. That's the central argument that I would like to uh, try and explain. I don't think I can explain everything because it's a very long thing. I will just uh, go into it. But this is essential because human actions cannot otherwise eliminate Dukkha. It's very central to Buddhism. So we want that. So it is easier to understand this perhaps in a historical perspective. Differential equations use the calculus. Calculus as it was invented in India was translated and sent to Europe in the 16th century. So there is all the evidence for that compiled in this book, Cultural Foundations of Mathematics and the Transmission of Calculus from India to Europe in the 16th century. But the point is, it is not that we did something very glorious. Yes, we did something glorious, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is that Europeans did not understand the Indian calculus, Indian method of summing infinite series. It used non-Archimedean arithmetic. Uh, a quick, uh, you see, this is not the only case. Whenever information is transmitted from one region to another, there is lack of understanding. And this happened with everything. It happened with algorithms, it happened with numbers, it happened with sine, cosine, trigonometry, with calculus, with probability. And there are details of that. Uh, I gave a talk at MIT which covers all this in great detail. And there is an abstract, there's a video, there's a presentation available. So maybe you can take a look at that. It gives all the details available. And if you forget the link, you just go to my uh, website, ckraju.net. There you will find all these links. So what's the point? How did they happen? I'll just try to briefly explain why did they misunderstand calculus. See, Aryabhat, when he developed the calculus and he calculated a value of pi, what is pi? If I have a circumference of a circle, circumference, the ratio of circumference to diameter. Well, this developed into an infinite series. But the circumference and diameter of a circle are empirical things. I can see the diameter. If I draw a circle, I can see the circumference. I can see the diameter. But if one rejects that, one is left only with the infinite series for pi, which developed by the Kerala school. Maybe he will be talking about it. I presume he will be talking about it some more. Now, one cannot sum that uh, series infinitely, so you have an inexact value. And therefore, Descartes said that, he said in his geometry, that it is beyond the capacity of the human mind to understand the ratios of curved and straight lines. Now, I can use a string and I can measure a curved line. It's a flexible string. I can straighten the string and I can measure a straight line. So with the beyond looking only at the infinite series. And understanding of calculus led to the failure of Newtonian physics. That Newton believed in laws. We speak of Newton's laws. And he wrote laws. In fact, in his own notes, he cancelled hypothesis and wrote lek. Those notes are available in the Jerusalem National Library. But the point is, he thought that those laws, because they are eternal, must be written in the perfect language of mathematics. Exact. Perfect. How do you achieve perfection? 
So to achieve perfection, he thought, because he needed a derivative with respect to time, he thought that you must make time metaphysical. And perfection lies only in metaphysics. And that is how it is still taught. Calculus is still taught when we talk of real number system. That is metaphysics. We teach that if you want to derivate, if you want to differentiate, then you must have the notion of real numbers. So Newton thought that time itself must flow. He had a theory of fluxions. It was a slightly different theory. It was not the same as real numbers. And uh, this is what he said in his Principia. Absolute, true, and mathematical time flows on without regard to anything external. Four adjectives to describe that time must be metaphysical because it is perfect, because he is writing down the equations, the laws of God in a perfect language. Yeah, I have two books <laughs> on the subject. <laughs> All right. so, I, it was difficult to summarize. All I am saying is that time flows. Newton said time is metaphysical. It is absolute without regard to anything external. Newton <laughs> So this was a conceptual error, trying to say that time flows. Fluxions means flows. And this has been discussed in Indian tradition. Sri Harsh, who takes from Nagarjun, in his Khandan Khanda Khadya, he discusses this, which is also today called Mektagat's Paradox in the Western uh, philosophy of time. It is discussed in both these books. It's discussed in this book initially, all those things. So time cannot flow. Things may flow in time. How can time itself flow? If time itself has to flow, there must be a second time with, with respect to which it flows. No. Time is uh, in your mind only if it is metaphysics. Time is out there in physics. If I am writing physics, if I am doing physics, I am coming to that right now. So because Newton put it in his mind or in God's mind, he made it metaphysical, therefore his physics failed. Because to do physics, I must be able to measure time with a clock. And because Newton did not specify a clock, he said time is in God's mind, therefore Newtonian physics failed. And that is what is discussed here, that because it did not define a clock, therefore it failed and it was replaced by the theory of relativity. Yes, yes, it is made by us, we have to define it, but we have to define it in order to do physics, which must be refutable. If I speak of uniform motion in Newtonian physics, how do I know what is uniform motion? 
And if I don't know what is uniform mode without a clock, equal distances in equal times. So I must know what is a clock. And if I don't know what is a clock, then it is not refutable. Is it your heartbeats or mine? Something which is uniform motion according to your heartbeats is not uniform motion according to my heartbeats. Therefore, it is not refutable. If it is not refutable, it is not physics. That is where it failed. And that's what happened. So this led to the theory of relativity where a clock was defined using the speed of light, you can change it. But you must define a clock in order to do physics, in order to be able to measure the thing. As Isaac Barrow, Newton's mentor said, those who do not define a clock, who do not define time uh, and do physics are quacks. He was referring to Augustine, who said, I don't know what time is. So, uh, the point is, a little noticed consequence of relativity is that after relativity, you have to use something called functional differential equations. I have a series of six articles in physics education recently explaining functional differential equations. They were first formulated in this book. What is the point? What is this functional differential equation? What are we achieving with it? Okay, so let me explain in brief. That with the earlier thing we are talking of laws of nature using ordinary or partial differential equations the present state decides both past and future states of the cosmos functional differential equations is just a mathematical theorem, not some hypothesis but just a correct way of which i will consider retarded and of mixed type with retarded equations the past decides the future future does not decide past <laughs> Uh, functional differential equations is a coupled ordinary and partial differential equations where the state at now depends on the state in the past. Past is involved, not just the present instant. So it depends on the past. Possibly also on the future. With retarded equations, it depends only on the past. And therefore, the past determines the future, but not other way around. With mixed type equations, past conditions the future, but does not determine it. That's the, so that is the model that I have proposed. That it could de It's not something completely, you know, not that a book will suddenly turn into a horse. No. The future is conditioned by the past, but not determined by it. This is most important, and that is part of the physics step. So, one possible case is if we correct Newtonian gravity. So, Newton's gravity fails. So this is my retarded gravitation theory. And it improves on Newtonian gravitation, even within the solar system and also in the galaxy. Improves on general theory of relativity, which cannot be applied to the galaxy. I won't go into that. There is a reference in physics education. It's an expository reference, pedagogical reference on retarded gravity. Uh, if somebody wants, you can go into more details. But uh, this does not really involve any new hypothesis. It is part of existing science. We are dropping hypothesis. We are dropping some metaphysics. We are not, I'm not saying believe this because I want to speculate. I'm not speculating. I'm saying within current science, this is the best way to do it with mixed type equations. So this is where Paticca Samuppad comes in, that if you have mixed type equations, the future is conditioned by the past, but not determined by it. And this is a logical consequence of doing the mathematics correctly, of doing the physics correctly.
And well, various people like, well, if you see in Islam also, there is something similar. When you speak of continuous creation, uh, it is conditioned by past habits, but not determined by it. It's not laws of nature. And similar beliefs about creativity among Neoplatonists and Gnostics and so on. This creativity is central of central importance from the point of view of Patitsa Samapad. Last point that I will make is that quantum mechanics and Chatushkoti, if we do this, I have not mentioned quantum mechanics, I am not going into it. This book offers a new way of doing quantum mechanics. What happens is that if you have mixed type functional differential equations, you get a structure of time. If I am doing calculus, I assume that time is like a straight line and you know everything must be done with that. But time may have a structure. There may be multiple streams of time and such as multiple streams of time naturally arise. If there are multiple streams of time, logic changes. One way to understand that is with a parallel processor. This computer may have several processors which are simultaneously processing uh, different streams. And if I want to deal with such a parallel processor, we, well, I was in CDAC and we helped to build the first Param supercomputer. People used to ask, can you give us a debugger? If you break the state of the system at one instant, you don't get a unique state. And because there are multiple streams in one processor, Schrodinger's cat may be alive or it may be dead. So logic changes. And that change in logic, which is discussed here, I called it quasi-truth functional logic, is the same as Chatushkoti. So the whole thing gets tied up. You have Shunyavad, you have Paticha Samuppad, you have Chatushkoti. It gets tied up very nicely, very neatly. And this is also relevant to future technology of quantum computing. I'm not going into shield. I have a, because I don't think I have enough time. Uh, there is a paper I have written on harmony principle, which connects this. It is published in Philosophy East and West. It is also explained here. So maybe you take a look at that. It is, uh, I cannot explain everything right away. Let me summarize. So religious dogma has crept into mathematics and science. The belief in certitude and exactitude of mathematics are dogmas as is the belief in eternal laws of nature. Any comparison of science and religion must take this into account that there are cultural elements there, within mathematics, within science. For an objective comparison, one must, or for at least a fair comparison, I don't want to use the word objective, we must reformulate both mathematics and science to eliminate those dogmas. This has been done. But it needs to be made more widely known. And... And this change in mathematics and science needs to be brought into educational practice as we have tried to do, but it needs to be brought into educational practice. So summary of mathematics is again, I think I have already said that, there, there is much duk in present day mathematics. I wrote an article on making math easy and I got hundreds of letters from people said, my child is very bad at mathematics, please do something. Now, I don't have an individual solution, I have a collective solution. So it's a system which has to be changed and that is what we must start trying to change. And we can do that if we do mathematics with uh, zeroism. And it needs to be brought into mainstream education. Uh, 
Zeroism changes the philosophy of mathematics by accepting fallibility, by accepting inexactitude. It's neither certain nor non-certain, neither exact nor inexact. It agrees with the actual mathematical practice and makes mathematics work better. So once more, the idea is that not just because it agrees with my uh, whatever leanings may be, but because it works better also. Okay, the science, I think I can uh, skip because I've just said it, that if you modify science, if you give up the dogma of laws of nature, then you get a science which is closer to Patichasamukpad. And uh, also gives you Chatushkoti. So I will, uh, this, uh, uh, I will stop with, uh, I've, I'll skip Sheila, I never talked about it really. The changing education in terms of practical concrete steps, we want to decolonize education and change it. That has been what we have been trying to do. And there is a lot of, uh, because uh, the education system, complete education system has to change. And we have tried this, Calculus Without Limits is one course, we tried History Philosophy of Science, teaching it differently, that's another course, and uh, String Geometry, Statistics for Social Science, and so on. So let us start teaching uh, mathematics like that. Let us start teaching, uh, at least in Buddhist institutions, at least in Buddhist institutions like Nalanda or uh, uh, Sanchi or in Taiwan or in Thailand and so on, at least let us start teaching there. At least let us introduce a course on Buddhism, science and technology, which explains to people what these possible connections are, what these possible biases may be, and uh, which could be later expanded to teach also science with Paticca Samuppad. Thank you very much. I thank Professor Andrew. Your lecture creates deeper knowledge, but for me, more confusion. I am grateful to Professor Radru for giving us some very concrete and practical proposals at the end of a naturally very abstract for non-mathematicians expose. And I uh, actually realized that uh, I forgot at the beginning to request His Holiness to make some opening remarks, but perhaps you would like to do so now. I know that we have some more minutes after, before the tea break for uh, a discussion, but I would like your holiness to... Uh... The very name here, Buddhism and Science, actually it lasts, I think, over 30 years, as you know. A, I start serious discussion about Serious discussion with modern scientists. Mainly four fields, cosmology, neurobiology, mm -hmm. uh, then physics, mm -hmm. particularly like quantum physics, mm -hmm. then psychology. Uh, so I, see, at the beginning, see, some people you see, use this word, dialogue between Buddhism and science. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I suggested this is wrong. Uh, we we engage with scientists. This the subject when we say Buddhism and then uh, Nirvana. 
Buddhahood. Or this is the, I think, the, I think, the, uh, I think very important part of Buddhism. Hmm? So we are not discussing these things. The, even we are not discussing with scientists about next life. Oh. Sometimes when we discuss about mind or different level of mind, then some sort of what's the reference, reference, the innermost, the subtle level consciousness, you see, there is continuation. So from that viewpoint, no beginning, no end. So sometimes you see that kind of sukhata, uh, that topic or that point sometimes you see uh, connected. Otherwise, we never discuss about next life. Hmm? As you know. And then, so I, I usually use describe Buddhist science and modern science. Buddhist science means about our about physical and cosmology, these things you see mentioned there. You see, uh, as a result of meeting with scientists, now some of our sort of belief is outdated. <laughs> so some certain sort of concept, I publicly, I'm Buddhist monk, I publicly sort of, how should I, reject. These are uh, not true. Scientifically, we can prove does not exist such thing, such as Mount Miru, like that. Uh, but then, uh, cosmology, you see, not just Big Bang once, no. No beginning. And every particle is a substance, you see, no beginning. If there is beginning, then certain things without cause must come. Because the cause, there are Conditions, where? Cooperative condition. And then, substantial sort of cause. So, as far as the substantial cause must be same nature. So, like consciousness or some other particle, there must be, you see, continuation of previous sort of cause. So, from that, Viewpoint even before Big Bang, just empty space. This very very subtle level particles there. Uh, Something like that, that some non-Buddhist uh, school thought also, you see, believe that. Mm. Mm. So this, this is sort of similar view, no beginning, like that. Uh, then, see, it is quite obvious. If you believe just Big Bang once, then we have to sort of uh, think, what's the causes? of that tremendous sort of explosion. Without cause, you see, we can't, uh, it, it cannot sort of take place. So there must be certain sort of substance to produce immense sort of pressure. Right? Then explosion, you see, take place. 
So that, there must be some sort of particles. That particle also come from their own causes. So from that viewpoint, no beginning. Similarly, consciousness also is a no beginning. In any way, uh, cosmology and uh, neurobiology, you see, we really learned very, very useful information from modern sort of scientific findings. Very helpful. Uh, then, uh, physics, physics, especially quantum physics, the Nagarjuna, you mentioned Nagarjuna's yeah. sort of, you see, nothing exist objectively. It's very similar, quantum physics view and Nagarjuna's view. And meantime, no. so then psychology, psychology is concerned, you see, I usually call ancient Indian psychologists, Indian knowledge about psychology, highly developed. So as a result, over 30 years ago, I see the uh, discussion with scientists they really find sort of very, very useful to get more information about human mind, human emotion, and then fuller knowledge about the function of the emotion, then much easier to tackle this destructive emotion like that. So what I usually call science of Buddhism, or Buddhist science, mainly uh, science of mind, and then modern science, like that. So that I usually see, Kasoda. Uh, I mean, just Kasoda. Kasoda. Actually, feel like that. So Buddhism may be too big word. Okay. So now, so therefore, now, I really appreciate which is such as it is meeting. I really admire, you see, your knowledge, much depth. So as I briefly mentioned, the two tooth, kasa, tempani. Samriddhi sadhya and paramat sadhya. Oh, so the very reason two tooth, you see, concept of two tooth come is there is sort of big sort of gap, appearances, and reality. Uh, so itself, sometimes contradiction. But then the Nagarjuna's, I think, a unique thing, you see, he often used the why things does not exist objectively. You see, he used the reason Patit-Samuband. So Patit-Samuband means there is something, but due to other factors, not by itself. So when we analyze things, what is the objectively, what is there? Nothing can be found because objectively nothing exists. But that does not mean nothingness. But there is thing. It worked. So you drink a lot of water. You see, it is, it is true. <laughs> if we investigate what is the water <laughs> before you taking water, if you investigate, you can't find water. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. <laughs> so I think the, the concept of truth, truth, not only just Buddhist sort of kasoda, Buddhist tradition, but at that time, the, I think all India's 
because the philosophical views, you see, have this concept, you see, truth, truth. So really wonderful, really wonderful. Uh, like that. So, now last sentence, you mentioned the existing education system. Uh, of course, it's from different sort of angle. I also feel that my sort of view is the existing education system is very much oriented about matters or material, material value. So the whole generation who come through that kind of education, then uh, eventually more sort of neglect about our inner value. So today, as far as modern education is concerned, it's highly, it's much developed. And with that technology and many things, highly developed. But I think human suffering seems increasing these wonderful human innovations, innovation, science and technology, these also now causing more suffering, more problem. So what is lacking? Sense of responsibility. And that also is very much related with sense of concern of others' well-being. And as well as the full sort of, because of the, because of the, the conviction we're all same human being. I want happy life, do not want suffering. They also, according to my experience, they also, see, have the same sort of wish and the same right. Therefore, if you accept, accept, you see, seven billion human beings have same right, then there's no basis to kill, to bully, to cheat irrespective of whether uh, accept God or not, or accept Buddha or not, doesn't matter. Because of the, our, our very life should be more peaceful, more happier. Here, I think our prayer, sometimes is God or Buddha, also more or less fail to bring happy world. <laughs> so now, our responsibility you see, to create more happy, happier world. Then Buddha and God, I think, certainly will please, because of much, much please. Then I think they may give us more blessing. If we against God's wish, then I think God also feel a little bit hesitant to give blessing. <laughs> so, so sometimes I, uh, I usually say, Telling, you see, if we have the opportunity to see Buddha uh, and Jesus Christ and ask, please bring peace on this planet, then I think Buddha and Jesus, Jesus Christ, I think, may tell who creates this violence, who destroys peace. Not Buddha, not Jesus Christ, but you human being. So you have the responsibility to solve, to reduce this problem since you created. So our education system, I think not adequate. Uh, so, so that's my sort of view. So I really appreciate. I really hope in future, because uh, of minor life sort of conference, 
I think some cases, I think you should, you should come. Then, as I mentioned earlier, I wish is to create more confusion. <laughs> that I really, I really used to wonder. <laughs> Thank you. I believe that uh, the floor is uh, invited to make some comments or raise some questions, if there are any. Uh, I have a couple of uh, short comments. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned a couple of times... You would like to use the microphone. Chuck, do they? Chuck? I think it's in 10 minutes, right? We, we have 10 minutes. Okay, you mentioned a couple of times the inexitude of uh, mathematics, the square root of two, it can never be precise. And um, you mentioned several times the lack of uh, precision of... And actually, in the science I represent, uh, life science and also physical science, science gave up long ago the idea of being exact. You know, science cannot be exact by definition. If I let this pen fall, I can calculate exactly the speed given the mass and given... But doing so, for example, I neglect the friction. I can put in my equation the friction, but then I neglect the fact that in the time the earth moved a little bit. So I should keep that in. Then I should keep some principle of relativity. And, you know, it never ends if you want to be exact, cannot be done exactly. And the whole point is that you do what you do with science depending on what you want to do. So for me, it's enough, you know, approximately to know the speed. And I don't care about the second, third, fourth, fifth decimal. I don't care about the uh, precision the same with biology, and uh, I think science it cannot any longer be defined as something striving for absolute precision. Uh, uh, may I uh, make an intervention here? I did not say science tries to be exact. I said mm. mathematics, formal mathematics, claims to be exact. It's that it claims that if I do a calculation on a computer for science, that is inexact, that is erroneous. Mm. That is the point. Science cannot be exact. Science accepts, uh, physicists accept what I say. They don't have a problem. It's the mathematicians, formal mathematicians who have a problem. Uh, the same for... The same for objectivity, but I come to that on my talk. And I have a final question to you, which is a little, uh, you know, a bad one. Uh, no problem. <laughs> if, an old philosophical question. For you... So, first, I think I would like to know, what is the definition, bad and good? <laughs> <laughs> 
bad is when he's put into trouble. <laughs> and the question is, for you, mathematics, is a discovery or an invention? You know, mat- America has been discovered, was already there. Differential equations have been invented. They were not there. Mathematics in general and geometry, it's an invention of mankind or was already there, you know, as archetype or in nature. It's, it's, it's an invention of man or not. Well, I already answered it in my writing. It's obviously an invention. So we are talking about, uh, I mean, it is a platonic theory that it is up there. There is some truth up there which you have just discovered. So I am not claiming that at all. I am saying there is a reality there which you are not discovering, which you are trying to describe. Okay, and which you are discovering, trying to describe, uh, which you are inventing hmm, in your description of it. So for example, when Aryabhat will give something, it's an invention. It's out there. You see it. And you describe it. So you have a model. So according to me, mathematics is an auxiliary physical theory. It is as much an invention as any other physical theory. It's not a discovery. So that discovery is platonic. It talks about your soul. It talks about the discovery of the soul and so on. Brings in a whole lot of categories which I am not uh, bringing in here. All right. So not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> If there is no other comment, perhaps with your holiness's permission, we could break for tea because I think we have reached. Uh, mm, mm.